Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Absolutely. It seems bizarre. You know, that's why Backlash has come out with this, that a 16-year-old who can have sex would actually be on the sex offenders when taking a photo of themselves. More from Wired's Leah Clark later as we discuss how sexting could make teens sex offenders. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. We start with this week's picks from the UK tech news. Joining me is CNET.com senior editor, Andrew Hoyle. Hello. New smart seats, Andy, that feature built-in heart rate monitors could help flight attendants identify passengers like you who are feeling ill or anxious, according to a report in The Telegraph. Now, this is something that's been developed by four students at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands in collaboration with KLM Airlines and the aircraft equipment manufacturer Zodiac Airspace, which is the name I love dearly. Uh, The concept was shortlisted for an award at the recent Aircraft Interiors Expo, which sounds just as exciting as the name implies in Hamburg. I don't know, actually. I've never been, but it does sound tremendously interesting. This is effectively technology that's going to help people with a inherent nervousness of being in a compressed like cylinder. Like me. Like me. Yes, that's me. Um, yeah, it, it sounds quite interesting. Um, so what it, it does, basically, if I'm right, is that it will track your heart rate and then it will pass that information onto the uh, the um, cabin crew uh, and the pilot so they can see in real time who, who which people in which seats have got elevated heart rates and are therefore feeling quite anxious. Is that is that right? Is that how, that's how it works? That is exactly how it works, yes. I will file that under hashtag correct. Good news. Um, that seems quite interesting because for me, I am a very bad flyer and I really don't like it at all. And so I imagine that through quite a lot of the, the trips I have to make, my heart rate is pretty sky high um, unless I've had a significant amount of alcohol, which I do try to do. It's the only way I really get on a plane. There's but- a really great name for the uh, the app that flight attendants will use to read the information curated by the sensors in the seat. Go on. Flight beat. Yeah, that's quite nice. It's succinct. It gets the point across. I think the the question will be is then what do they do? Like if they know that somebody's nervous, I mean, how can they really act on that? Like what what are the options? Because there's been occasions before where people have known, like the people have been told that oh, I'm I'm a nervous passenger, and you can do that. You can introduce yourself to the crew in advance and say, I'm a nervous flyer. I'm not looking forward to this. Basically, be nice to me. But even so, there's only so much they can do other than ply you with alcohol. There is, but I think that at least having that awareness, there are some people, particularly I would say British flyers, we are tend we tend to be a coy bunch when it comes to talking about ourselves in public, you know, uh, exposing our inner feelings, opening the kimono of emotion, <laughs> and uh, and revealing the anxiety that dwells beneath, like some sort of weird uh, sort of uh, anxiety geisha. Um, but this is hoped that it would avoid costly emergency landings um, on which I have been on one of those. I mean, it's actually because I think somebody 
I'm not sure if they died on the flight, but somebody was carried off on a stretcher uh, and didn't look particularly well. Mm, doesn't look good. And I, uh, and I have to say that that did seem like a very good reason to land. I think certainly in terms of because there is, um, it's not just for nervous flyers, also for people who may be ill. Maybe this will be the early warning sign that somebody's going to be unwell and that situation could turn into um, an actual illness, a heart attack or similar that would force a plane to land where so they could get doctors' um, attention much sooner, have them under control, maybe they need medication they haven't taken and the flight can carry on uninterrupted. A tremendous way of quelling flight-based anxiety is, of course, playing games. They distract the mind and the mind will distract the body. And according to the BBC, Tanelli Armanto, who created the first version of the game Snake for Nokia. The most famous game with a name you just wouldn't ever know. Absolutely. He is working on a with a developer called Rumulus Design to create an app called Snake Rewind. Now, before you get excited, this is not about... Too late. Already am. No, this is not about a snake that goes backwards. This is not this. It is a new version of Snake. Now, before you get even more excited, I mean, I hopefully have just trodden on the snake that was... I would say, Nate, if I were to be sat in that plane seat, they would be worried about my condition. Well, don't worry. I mean, Snakes on a Plane was a big hit back in the day. Um, No, there's a new version of Snake being developed by the original creator, and it's going to be released for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone, which I find to be a delightful little bit of uh, irony, given that Windows Phone is basically now owned by Microsoft after Microsoft bought Nokia's devices division, devices division, of course, which back in 1997 put Snake on everybody's radar uh, with the Nokia 3310. No, actually, I tell a complete lie. It wasn't. It was the 6110 that had Snake 1. The 3310 had Snake 2, which had a kind of a snake a gradient snake, and it ate fruit. And um, Instead of little blips. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think there was some other features in there. Anyway, that's the good news, that Snake's coming back. Yeah. The bad news is that the snake is a shrewd business snake. Yeah, that's what ruined it for me. It's going to come as a free game with in-app payments. I am devastated because the one thing that made Snake great, no, one of the things that made Snake great, was the fact that when you bought the phone, you got the whole game. Yeah. No buying additional special fruits for it to eat. And that is unfortunately exactly what's going to happen with this Snake. And I'm not judging it too soon. It's just that I kind of feel very nervous when really great old games are announced to be coming back to mobile platforms because right now that means they're going to be designed around micropayments, freemium models. Fortunately so far, Theme Hospital has not been subjected to the freemium revival. uh, But it's the only one from that series that hasn't. I mean, if you tried playing um, Rollercoaster Tycoon, my God. God. No, I, I just, I refuse to. I mean, at, at this point, if I see a game that is uh, free with in-app payments, yeah. unless, I mean, I really need to be convinced. I need to read, I need to be basically told by someone who's played it, who said, this isn't too bad. One of the only exceptions I can think of at the moment is a game called Two Dots, which is... Yeah, Two Dots is good. CSR Racing, actually, is one I play quite a lot, and that's one that... that 
you can rely heavily on in-app payments if you want, but actually getting through the game and progressing normally without... I've not spent a penny on it. It's great. Um, but this did very much upset me when I saw this on Snake. It's like you thought, great, here's a classic re return of a game. And then actually read a bit uh, a bit further and talking about... They've, they're going to have a, a fruit store. So, like, what? I mean, why do you need to buy different fruits? That isn't what the game was. It was just about moving one little line around the screen. It would eat a dot, and that's great. That's the perfect sort of game you need on a 20-minute commute or a 45-minute toilet break. Any of those things it would be fantastic, but not when it comes to having to spend this extra money for no reason. Would you like to know the most interesting fact about Snake that I found when doing my research about for, for this story? Do you know what it is? Uh, yeah, I think so. Snakes don't have eyelids. Okay. And they smell with their tongue. I knew that. Yeah, they also have heat sensitive, but maybe that'll be part of the game. Maybe you can buy eyelids as an in-app payment. It'll never scale. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, uh, just to conclude, the game is out, I think, this week on, on Thursday. But it's free to buy. It's free to play. Right, that's what I mean, yeah. Free yeah. to get the game. Free to get the game. Okay. Um, let us know what you think if you play the uh, the revival of Snake. We should give it a try before we write it off completely as being a corporate sellout, awful thing, I suppose. Yes, we, we probably should. Um, but if you have played the game already, if you are willing to leave a review for next week's episode, podcast at natelangson.com. Not everyone in the world is as beautiful as you, dear listener, and not everyone knows how to download a podcast. That's why I'm encouraging you to bring someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show and which app you use to listen to it. You'll be helping not only me in text message, but all podcasters who often need word of mouth more than money to help promote their work. Thanks for listening, and hopefully, thanks for the review and the help spreading the word. Or if you want to be on the show, Send your comments about this episode or any other tech topic. Podcast at natelangson.com. Teenagers sending consensual, sexually explicit messages are unfairly being labelled sex offenders because of UK laws, say censorship activists. Backlash, a collective of academics and legal experts, is calling for a change to existing laws around creating child pornography to protect those under 18s engaging in purely consensual activity. The campaign is being led by lawyer Miles Jackman, who penned an article last week entitled Don't Criminalize the Selfie Generation. While party leaders on the campaign trail have been unashamedly capitalizing on the phenomenon of splashing their face all over social media, government policies around censoring sexual content have essentially criminalized the act of two 16 to 18 year olds sending each other consensual sexual content or sects. These individuals could be placed on the sex offenders register for life, impacting their employment opportunities and leaving them with the stigma attached to such a serious offence. Those are the words from a feature written by Wired's Liat Clark, and I am currently walking to the office of Wired to a park in the middle of the daytime 
here in London to meet Liat and talk to her about the real implications that both this outdated law, perhaps outdated law, is having on the so-called selfie generation and also who backlashes. I wanted to find out more about who this collective of academics and legal experts are that Liat was talking about. Backlash is a group of lawyers and academics which originally they weren't brought together because of any laws that could impact 16 to 18 year olds. It was more around obscenity laws and the applications around that particularly relating to technology today and pornography online and how that could impact people differently. However now they've kind of made a point of coming out to say this law is being applied in a way it wasn't designed to be applied and they will protect under 18s that they feel are being unfairly targeted. Now is there a risk that this sort of suggests that sexually explicit images of 16 and 17 year olds specifically is acceptable to be shared? I don't think so I think it's just saying this law is outdated there are certain times when people might get caught in the crossfire they never intended for this to happen they're partaking in something completely consensual you know it's a fact that many 16 and 17 year olds have sex they might also partake in activities such as this and be enjoying it on the other hand they might be coerced into it and that's when there's a danger and that's why I think this should this should be talked about more there should be more education around it rather than more kind of scaremongering from policymakers, politicians, police. But it sort of feels like that's what the law is now in a way. I mean, it's it shouldn't be targeting the people who have been coerced. Like, they should be protected by the law. Surely it should be the, the people going on the sex offenders register. It shouldn't be the people whose bodies necessarily are in the pictures, but the people who have actually uh, forced them into creating those. Absolutely. It seems bizarre. You know, that's why Backlash has come out with this, that a 16-year-old who can have sex would actually be on the sex offenders when taking a photo of themselves. Um, Completely bizarre. It's basically 16 to 18-year-olds. If you get under 16, it gets even murkier. In reality, the existing law, although technically a 16-year-old, an image, sharing an image of a 16-year-old would be considered uh, dealing with indecent images and child pornography, um, in reality... The CPS Crown Prosecution Services recommends doesn't recommend that you would prosecute two consenting individuals of a similar age. So, it, it there is some kind of there there is some murky ground here, and that's the issue. The police came out. I think it was in Nottinghamshire and sent loads of leaflets to schools warning about sexting, and it was all quite scary uh, and the consequences. And there were a few case studies where people were, you know, fined by the police or cautioned. Um, but in general, there is, you know, police are using common sense. It's just whether or not there is a, a kind of uh, a defined set of rules that everybody is following, and that's really not the case. Now, one sort of troubling thing is that we know children as young as 12 are regularly watching online pornography in Britain. And there have been a few studies done, and some of them controversial uh, because they were conducted by marketing agencies. I know it's something you've written about. But do you know how this would be handled? Um, Should they also be sending such content to each other? This is the case of basically children under 16, 12 in this example, but let's say 12 to 15-year-olds. You know, they may be even less mindful of the potential harm it can cause them, if not legally, then certainly socially or in later teenage years. Technically, that would be two non-consenting children dealing in child pornography. Well, child abuse 
images. Um, so I, I can't see a world in which a 12-year-old would be prosecuted. More likely, child services would be called in because there's something a little bit awry here, which again is why I think education is something that I always go on about when I write these pieces and it's what so many people are calling for academics say we just need to have proper sex education in schools we need to be able to talk to children about this we need to explain to them you know yes it's fine to explore your sexuality and do this that and the other but number one the implications of sharing this in a digital format it's there forever it can have implications later in life you know and it, people can share it against your will but also, you know, what does it mean to be sexually curious and what's okay and what's not okay and, you know, the issue of consent, things like that. And the Conservative government has pretty much voted down kind of compulsory state-funded uh, state school sex education. And that's been something that's kind of gone by the wayside. And I think, I think that will be really important going forward. I can imagine that there's a need to educate adults and parents as much as children on this issue. And I mean, you and I are, I mean, both fairly liberal minded people and of a generation that has gradually just got used to the fact that we have mobile phones everywhere and then mobile phones have got cameras anywhere. And therefore, you know, I mean, obviously you are expecting yourself, but, uh, but, but at the time that that sort of a conversation is likely to happen, the world would be a very different place where having that conversation might be quite easy, where there may be a lot of people at the moment who are faced with the idea of having to think it's acceptable for, say, a 10-year-old to be told about the dangers of taking sexually explicit images of themselves on a phone. And while it sounds ridiculous to think that that is an issue, it is actually an issue. It is happening. And where is the responsibility there? You know, is it even of the school? Is it the parents? I know this is an age-old debate, but I mean, we're talking about parents and, and sometimes not understanding the technology as well as the children eventually will. And who's making the call about what's right? That's absolutely true. And I think parents are always going to be a few steps behind their kids. I am astonished when I watch my three-year-old nieces and nephews, you know, using tablets as if, I, I don't know, it's just like riding a bike for them, like when we were three and four. It's so second nature that there's always going to be new issues that we're trying to catch up on. But first and foremost, although, yes, I don't have a 10-year-old, so I can't understand how difficult it would be to have this discussion with them, it surely is the parents' responsibility to kind of make sure that their child feels comfortable talking to them about very uncomfortable things you know potentially and asking them the awkward questions you know as long as your your child kind of feels like they can go to you or to a school teacher or someone um an adult you know not a 15 year old at school that's gonna say yeah yeah of course we all we all do this although apparently sexting is not something that teenagers say i was reading today Apparently it's just journalists and politicians that say it. So we already are completely clueless. Um, it's worthwhile talking about the political aspect to this. Um, this podcast is going out after results day, but we are actually recording this on the day of the general election. Um, David, Cameron's, David Cameron has taken a hardline approach to trying to promote the protection of children from sexual influence in his previous government, as well as present manifesto. Is the placement of 16-year-old 16 16-year-old uh, 16 sexters on the sex offenders register classed as protecting them? 
and you know or do you suspect that a conservative government would promote legal changes that would effectively make these sorts of campaign groups that we're talking about needless basically these campaign groups are needed now because the law is outdated but if a future government is changing the law to protect children then this campaign is sort of effectively a stepping stone to a better legal system for the internet i hope so and actually i believe so i don't really see another way forward i think uh, prosecutions and future future amendments to the law would have to focus on the finer details, things like coercion and consent, whether an individual is, is doing this of their own free will with another person of a similar age and it's all dandy or whether there's something more nefarious going on. And I think the one thing to remember is that, that a kind of good thing has come out of all of this in that we now have made revenge porn as it's often referred to illegal which means and this was kind of brought up when sexting that kind of came to the fore in discussion can you just give a brief explanation of what revenge porn is for people who aren't aware yeah so essentially it's referring to individuals who have perhaps shared what people call indecent images but basically nude images or videos of themselves um, and they've perhaps shared them with a partner something's gone awry or the partner is just not a very nice person and they've decided to post them online you know there are whole websites where people are being blackmailed and they have to pay to have them taken down that's been going on for years or it could just be a horrible boy in the playground showing it sending it around school it could be kind of as low level as that not a huge organization making money from it but either way it's now illegal and you know part of that has to do with the culture around people taking images and videos themselves and sharing it with people that perhaps they should not be trusting and educating people around that but so I think the debate around you know criminalizing sexting which we're talking about here um, would perhaps shift to whether it was ever consensual in the first place okay here's a loaded question to end this discussion on um, personally I think, and I, I've said this before, I think we're living in probably not only the most narcissistic era of human history, but narcissism and the so-called selfie movement is praised and promoted as defining, as a, sort of as a defining generational trait uh, that will be remembered for. And is there a risk that the protection of 16-year-olds from dated laws is only scraping the top of the problem? Is our culture effectively itself more likely to cause damage, making it so acceptable to share photos of ourselves that we're on the cusp of children, or a generation of children, and wittingly creating a new era of self-created child pornography that's a lot harder to police? What a dystopian vision. <laughs> no, I, I certainly hope not. I think all these things are making us talk about uncomfortable topics when it comes to children and underage individuals and making us debate them as we should be as, as technology is changing and how it impacts these issues. So I think, no, I think we're at a tipping point where people talking about privacy and our rights, our digital rights, is gonna become much more prominent and that will overtake any fad over the selfie generation. I mean, people have been taking photos of themselves for much longer than we've been calling them selfies. We've just having a phase, I hope, and I, I think that digital rights will be much more important, which is why, you know, things like Snapchat became very popular because kids are smart. They are they are quite smart. You know, I think give future generations more credit. Leah Clark, Wired Dakota UK, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
You can read Liat's full feature on wired.co.uk by going to that website and searching for Sexting Could Make Teens Sex Offenders. Now, back to the news, and we have one more story that I wanted to discuss with Andrew Hoyle from CNET.com. As per a write-up on the BBC, employers must tackle a epidemic of staff checking work emails after hours, a former government advisor has said. Sir Kerry Cooper said a compulsion to deal with the messages had caused the UK's employees to become less productive than many of their international counterparts. Uh, The quote is uh, from, from Kerry. He says, For people to be working at night, weekends and holiday on emails is not good for the health of our country. Uh, He also wants to limit internal email usage. Uh, Final quote, we need to ban emails sent and received within the same building, advocating instead for face-to-face meetings and phone calls. Andy, you can probably guess my opinion about this. Yes, probably negative. I think you're probably against this or you're pro this. They are the two choices. They are the two choices. Um, I'm going to guess you're against this as somebody who's a big email user, but also... Nope. Okay, you're the other way. So you're the other way, because what what was going to be important to point out is that it seems almost counterintuitive to say um, we're, we're using email too much and, and we're using email on holiday and when we're away um, and that's making us less productive. But sort of the argument being, of course, that that's sort of causing a lot of just lethargy and depression and just and, and, and stress, which in turn is making us less productive. I liken this to a death metal album. Go on, here we go. Here's why. If you listen to an album of 12 songs of death metal, and they're all equally loud and heavy... Which they usually are. Not a good album. A good album, and this is my point, a good album has peaks and troughs in its intensity. And so, that's why a lot of heavy bands will put, say, an acoustic track somewhere in the middle. They'll have slower ones, because it makes the songs that follow it sound much heavier and louder because your brain moves up if you listen to those albums constantly it's like an onslaught well i was gonna say and they sound less heavy by the end the last time you truly referenced death metal on your podcast you were talking about flesh god apocalypse and listening to their album is basically the audio equivalent of swallowing an entire bag of acid no it's not i don't think it is because there are slow song on that album (laughs) that i use that no um but my general feeling is that and and i i speak I, I do uh, practice what I what I preach here is email in an evening can be very distracting overall because it doesn't allow you really to switch off. It doesn't allow that brain the downtime that is needed. The reason why holiday, taking lunch breaks, uh, resting, sleep. I mean, the reason that this is good is because the brain and the body it needs to recuperate it needs to switch off it's the reason i mean everyone experiences this you have a long day at work doing something really really stressful and 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 heavy you know you you go home for the evening come back the next day it doesn't feel quite as bad when you start doing that work again because you've had the break and you know that needs to be done you need these divisions so i'm for this Mm. email is also not an efficient form of communication no it's not and people don't know that's not like i am where they'll get an immediate ping and you can and you can reply and i and i understand his i've seen a lot of headlines that only led with email within companies within buildings should be banned and you know really going just for that negative but actually the theory behind it is good that the idea is that you should be getting up you should be walking around a that's physically active that's good and actually having these 
these team talks where you can have a bit of bonding as well as just sending an email i mean you were talking to me the other day about the advantage of actually um with bloomberg having so many bureaus you can actually go out and, and meet people face to face and have meetings rather than just have email conversations and i, I have the exact same thing at seen it like having face-to-face meetings to talk about issues is just worlds apart from sending an email a hundred percent i think the other thing is that um sending an email sometimes feels like you've completed your job you know sending off an email if effectively psychologically you're filing that task as being completed but actually that's often not the case because then you have that question in the back of your mind when you realize that you haven't had a reply has that person got the email have they acted on it that's sort of building up stress and if you, if you have a fairly simple job that involves basic email this may not sound like a big problem but if you are in a position where you're getting hundreds of emails a day and i am one yeah. of those people i know you are as well andy that sometimes it is just it, sometimes checking your email in an evening can just feel like firefighting mm. like you're basically just deleting irrelevant ones yeah. so that when you start working the next day you are at least slightly at an advantage yeah versus- you're in a bit of a clean slate the problem is and particularly when you talk about evenings is that that's not always possible so for my job i'm sure it's the same for you because cnet is a global company we have offices in san francisco when i leave work at half past five in an evening in uk time that is when the other half of the company is getting up and it does mean that in my evenings there are plenty of emails sent to me that i need to uh deal with and no i'm not going to be definitely not going to be fired or, or in trouble if i don't reply to them because that's not the culture we have but it would be in my own interest to deal with those issues whilst they're awake and whilst that can be discussed rather than leave it to my the next day which then will have to be another day before they read it and get back to me but why because i, I mean i appreciate and i have the same issue i have an american um company well, i can, tell you, I can well. tell you why no because i mean on the one hand it's you are compelled to do that Yes. It doesn't work the other way around. You're not calling them up while they're asleep. I will I will regularly get emails if needs be because we work in publishing and publishing is one of the industries where every minute will count where sometimes if we're talking about an article that has to go live that evening I know that I've kind of I've done my part in my working hours and left it with them and maybe they'll have another question before it gets set live and if I don't answer that they won't want to take the risk in putting something setting something live on the site perhaps we'd be maybe breaking an embargo so we need to make sure that those questions happen so that things don't go wrong and I'd rather I'd rather spend an extra half hour on email in total, which is realistically all it is, in an evening, than not do that and then have to spend potentially several hours the next day clearing up mess. So here's the challenge. As working in offices is evolving, people's work environments are very different. Nine to five is not the standard working pattern for a lot of people anymore. Even working in an office all day or in the same office all week people move around our technology has allowed us well the technology allows work to follow us but it does also open doors to let us work wherever we need to be and i think that part of the problem with just banning email um or or having companies impose some sort of blanket rule is also ignoring the very real fact that sometimes email is necessary and i think that 
a more realistic i mean first on the one hand no matter how many technologies come out to try and replace email the fact is email invented in the 70s still exists yeah and is still a primary form of communication the thing that's going to be the thing that needs to happen here really and if, excuse me this is going to be a bit more of a wider point but this is more about having a general shift in how people work you already talk about nine to five is no longer the norm but also things like as as uh, house prices in london become much higher people will want to people want to set up their business from home outside of the cities where they can afford it and where particularly when rural broadband becomes um, much more usable these are all sort of different ways people wanting to work people wanting to work from home have a lot more flexibility in all aspects of the job not just in terms of oh i i can work from home or the office but in terms of i can sort of dictate my own hours so if i want i can get up at nine rather than be at the office for nine and i can work slightly later into the evening so it's going to be has to be more around making sure that these downtimes are factored into the day in a way that's both physically and psychologically healthy so it's as plump as it's fat quite broad as it's long well let us know what you think. Podcast at natelangson.com. Are you an email addict? Should you be on the Jeremy Kyle show for your habitual problems? Um, or are you actually just fine as you are? And this chap and this podcast are really just plain offensive to the fact that it's not a problem. Podcast at natelangson.com. Let us know. Is email destroying your life, your wife? Or does it cause you no strife at all? Andrew Hoyle, Senior Editor at CNET.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Text Message, a weekly free podcast produced, edited, and funded by me, Nate Langson. Don't forget, you can help so much by bringing someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show and which app you use to listen to it. From the Corner Studio in my house in Ealing, London, thanks again for listening and for any help in spreading the word. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.